welcome to episode 314 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on Saturday 26th of November 2022. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. In other words, they make the kind of bikes that they want to ride. Turn has e-bikes for every type of rider, whether you're commuting, taking your kids to school, or even carrying another adult. Visit www.turnbicycles.com, that's T-E-R-N, bicycles.com, to learn more. Hi, I'm Carlton Reed, and this episode of the Spokesman Podcast is book-shaped. I talked to Hannah Reynolds about her Lee Jog book. But first, here's Ned Bolting discussing the fifth year of the big, fat road book. Uh, so happy birthday, fifth, fifth <laughs> edition. 2018 yeah. was the first one, and this is, this is a big, heavy book, and it's the 2022. So five mm. years. Ten kilos. <laughs> yes. 10 kilograms you could put it another way or the best part of 5,000 pages yeah I think when we set out we we thought about the future and we thought wouldn't it be a nice feeling to get to five years and then take it uh, and then go again and you know because it's a substantial chunk of time and actually Carl, when you think about and I take great pleasure and see for me this is the whole point of the book um, I picked up the 2018 edition and I actually reread, sounds rather vain this actually, but I reread my editor's introduction from 2018, which none of which I could remember writing. I mean, five years is quite a long period of time. And what struck me is how completely different the road racing world is already in that five year period of time. It's like, it's like talking to a different generation of bike riders. You know, it's quite extraordinary. Well, I think you mentioned in this year's editorial about the Gen Z. The, yeah. the, 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 the transfer of, of, of power across. And how quickly it's happened. You know, I, I think that um, I think the evolution in road racing is actually accelerating. And uh, I think the following year after 2018, 2019 for me is where it really started to change rapidly. And everything takes, I think everything uh, for obvious reasons in the road racing season takes its lead from what happens in the Tour de France. And that was the year in 2019 where we had this wildly unpredictable ride from Julien Alaphilippe who really seriously started to pose the question, can you win the Tour de France for France? You know, um, And ultimately he came up short, but it was glorious while it lasted. Um, you also had that incredible cameo from various other riders, but it was Alaphilippe's attacking spirit and also his sense of adventure and his kind of, well, I even I don't know how long I can sustain this, but I'll give it a go. That sort of spirit of risk readiness, I think has infected the peloton. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's, that's, that's what's led to these um, multiple different riders doing what appears to be impossible things. And in this editorial, in the, in the current one, the 2022, yeah. you, you absolutely major, you certainly start uh, on, the, on the Tour de France. So yeah. that, that's, I mean, it, it, to, to, a, to an outsider, Tour de France is the only race in, in the whole year. And the rest of your book is, oh, I've never heard of these races. So that, <laughs> yeah. that's kind of like... How do you justify talking about the Tour de France in that way, in that an enthusiast will go, oh, no, 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 the, the, you know, the, this tiny, you know, minor race in, you know, 
in in this tiny area is much better. So how do you how do you kind of like um, justify going straight into the race that everybody knows? Well, because it was the race that it was this year. I mean, 2022 was a very particular edition of the Tour de France. And not only I think I make the point in the and I'll come back to that point, Carlton. But I also it's a slightly wider point that I try to make in this uh, my editor's introduction this year that it's it's about the Tour de France and July, the month of July, because let's not forget this year was historic because it was the Tour de France Femme which launched or relaunched, mm. I should say. So July and France took centre stage, no doubt about it, for a couple of different reasons this year. And that's not to disparage the other races. That's not to, you know, that's not to decry those people who th- feel very strongly and for p- perhaps for good reason that there's no more beautiful race than Tirreno Adriatico or the, mm. the four days of Dunkirk. You know, that's all that's all wonderful stuff and great detail and venerable, fan- fascinating racing. But um, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, this year in particular, the Tour de France stood head and shoulders, the men's Tour de France stood head and shoulders above all the other stage races, I think, because of the spirit in which the two main protagonists uh, competed because of the spirit with which uh, Tade Pogacar, in his young career, still at the age of just 23 he was in July, um, encountered for the first time in his racing career a major setback. Mm. And, and it just bounced off him. And his spirit and his contentedness uh, w- w- with his chosen profession just shone through. As if what we learned about Tade Pogacar was that actually... He's a racer in the purest sense of the word. What he loves about his chosen career is he loves to race every bit as much as he loves to win. Uh, I thought that was remarkable. I thought that I thought that Jonas Vingegaard's the fulfilment of his very quick project from domestique to Tour de France champion was absolutely extraordinary to witness. But over and above that, I thought that uh, the individual ride by Wout van Aert this year and everything that he achieved. I think there's a strong case to argue, look, these things are just conjecture and opinion, but there is genuinely a strong case to be made for that individual performance by Wout van Aert this year being perhaps the greatest single ride by an individual in one edition of the Tour de France in the whole history of the race. Because never before have you had a a rider capable of winning over the same portfolio of different skills and also being a domestique who rescues the yellow jersey. It, it was, I mean, it, you know, you look back to the era of Eno and Merckx, and to some extent Onkatil as well, um, and they were capable of doing, uh, certainly in the case of Merckx, doing the things that Wat van Aert did, in other words, winning sprints, winning individual time trials, and winning mountain stages, or coming very close to winning mountain stages. Um, but they, they were never domestiques. They were never domestiques. And Wat van Aert's interventions as a domestique over and above everything else that he achieved, and by the way, he won the green jersey, and he very nearly accidentally won the polka dot jersey. His other massive intervention in the race was on more than one occasion, he rescued Jonas Vingegaard. You, you mentioned some of the old guys there, Onkatil and Merckx. So you, you almost wish that there was a road book in 1969. Um, Because then you could go back to exactly that and go and and pour through it. Is is there any chance? Could 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 that be? You know, you 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 could resurrect some of these statistics. Could you do an an old version of this this book? Can I just say, Carlton, watch this space. Mm. Watch this space very closely. Mm. 
because because um, that that was do you know that that thought was sowed in our minds mm. as early as 2018 when in our first year of the roadbook when I gave Chris Froome a copy mm. of the roadbook in mm. person and don't mm. forget that was the year that Chris Froome won his last um, Grand Tour that mm-hmm. was 2018 when he won the Giro d'Italia in that brilliant fashion. And I gave him a copy of that book and he looked through it and he's, he looked at me, looked me in the eye and he said, well, I'm just, it's just beyond irritating that I haven't got one of these for every year that I was winning mm. the Tour de France. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so we went, oh yeah, now look, that we always had to invent a year zero mm-hmm. and that was 2018, the first year we got it. But wouldn't it be something to go back in time and pick years uh, and give them those treatments? So we'll watch mm. this space. Okay. I'm, I'm, I just pulled up the history of Wisdoms, and that's 1864. And yeah, they've got a head start. They, they've got a bit <laughs> of a head start there. Um, but, I mean, that's basically what you've produced here. So for anybody who uh, is into their cricket and their cycling, this is the, the equivalent. It's the Bible of cricket, the Bible of, of cycling. It's that, that kind of thing you've gone for. Wisdom was very much our inspiration, mm. and uh, uh, the managing editor of uh, the, you know, the person who does the hard graft in terms of picking out the detail and putting the layout on the page, um, a, a brilliant colleague called uh, Charlotte Attio. She came, she came from Wisden. She, for many years, she worked at Wisden. And um, so she knows how to make a book like that. May I just say that it's my opinion, Carl, that you don't have to validate or disagree with, but it's my opinion that as a product um, that sits on the shelf, I prefer the road book in the sense that it's a nicer book it's bigger the p- quality of the the print and the and the, the paper on which it's printed is significantly higher than wisdom mm. um and, mm. and so we're very proud of that as well it's not just what you read on the page it's the way the whole thing feels in the hand mm-hmm. that, that matters to us greatly as well yeah so it's like a quality book of old yeah it's, it's not it's full of those, photographs it's, it's not like a, it's not a cycling weekly you know annual mm-hmm. it's it's a different animal isn't it here Yes, and in the past, you know, there have actually been, in, not, not written in English, but in, um, in, mm. in Italian and in Dutch, there have been books in the past that have done the equivalent of what we do, but they're no longer in print and they've mm. kind of come and gone. But they were always like, packed with adverts and they were all printed on magazine paper and a bit sort of like, whereas we knew from the start that if we were going to do this, it had to be an enduringly beautiful project, which actually, it kind of heaped the um, pressure on us in year one because we knew that whichever design we came up with effectively would have to look unchanged and beautiful 50 years from now. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, ha- we had to get it right. <laughs> so I'm looking here at the first one. It's 878 pages, you know, give the frontispiece uh, a few pages to 880. And that's the same as the this year's one. So you are stuck. Do you yeah. think you're stuck at that? That's your, the, the heft you need. That's how many pages you need to tell the year. That's interesting. I didn't know it was identical. Well, we, I mean, it does vary a little bit. It varied, of course, and this is really historic. It, it varied enormously in 2020. So if you look at, if you were to mm. look at the 2020 edition of the book, it's like almost half the size, two thirds of the size, perhaps, because so many races were cancelled because yes. of the pandemic. Yes. Um, and we took the decision that year as well to tweak the monogram at the, on the spine and actually fracture it, to break it up a little bit. And so this is also a part of the what the roadbook does is it documents history that sits alongside the racing season. You know, I was at I was at the UAE tour this year, working at the UAE tour, which is by the way something I regret doing and I'm never going to do again. But mm-hmm. um, 
uh, I was there when Russia invaded Ukraine and um, uh, a Russian team were represented on the race, Gazprom Rusvelo, which now no longer exists. It was disbanded very quickly after that. Um, and, you know, when I came to write my report, my reports for the roadbook about the UAE tour, what was going on geopolitically definitely figures in, you know, how we remember what happened in February 2022. So the pandemic, the war, all of it is, you know, reflected in, you know, road racing is not immune from mm. its interaction with the real lived world. And so going back to your original question, I think it's fascinating that 2020, the 2020 volume is thinner and it will always look different on the shelf. Mm. You know, mm. and people, you'll look back at that and you'll go, oh, wasn't that just the worst of times? And then you'll maybe pick the book up and you'll look at the weird Vuelta that year that finished in mid to late November mm. with those long shadows, you mm. know, as the race finished at four or five o'clock in the afternoon, it was virtually sunset. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Mm. Also, it had a certain sort of beauty about it. You also mentioned very briefly, but you, you, yeah. you kind of introduced cyclocross a little bit. Yes. You even yes. have one, one brief, very, very brief mention of gravel cycling. And then you, you mentioned the fact that you, you think you might not be including it in, until it, it is its own entity, because clearly only road riders are, are riding these things. So, so tell us why you've put cyclocross and that very brief mention of gravel cycling in. Yeah, it was, it's, it's an interesting debate that, and I kind of appreciate the reader's input in this. I think cyclocross just became something we could no longer avoid in the sense that it was having such a bearing on the way that um, mm. the road season was, was, uh, was being raced with the advent of Van der Poel, Van Aert and Pidcock. Um, because they had done what they did during the winter and developed this kind of physiological and psychological skill set that cyclocross seems so perfectly attuned to, um, it, they were shaping racing. They were shaping road racing, reshaping it. And so I think we thought there's too much crossover now between you know, the, the cyclocross and the influence it's having on road racing for us to ignore it any longer. And also, it's a, you know, people are really paying attention to it much more than they were. And so, and also, I think our other justification was, all right, it's not on the road, but a cyclocross bike kind of looks like a road mm-hmm. bike. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, I don't think we're ever, we'd ever include track in the mm-hmm. road book. I think that's a, a leap too far. But gravel, gravel is definitely on a road. And so in that sense, perhaps it should be in, in the road book. But at the moment, I don't feel as if gravel is dictating the terms of road racing uh, I think the opposite is true. You know, I think mm. road racers are going and experimenting with gravel. Um, but I'll keep my eye on that. And I think there's a strong argument potentially in the future for ro- uh, gravel, the gravel series, such as, as it is, and the new world championships to be included in the road book. Mm. Mm. And you've even mentioned, uh, I'd have to look at, at other issues if you mentioned this before, but you've even mentioned transportation cycling in the, in this editorial. But again, it's, it's, it's a fleeting mention. But you've mentioned it because that's your other great love, isn't it? Yeah, very much so, Carlton. I mean, I, it, 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 I don't see this as a contradiction. I see it actually as a natural evolution of my own history in cycling, which is relatively young, I suppose, in the sense that uh, this was my 20th Tour de France that I covered this year. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I was going to introduce a young 20th Tour de France. Well, I still feel, well, it's mad, isn't it? But I still feel like a, a slight newbie to a it. A newbie, you know, mm. when I, even when I speak to people like you, Carl, I understand you're steeped in the sport um, and, and 
your, your, your history with it long, long, far predates mine. So I always feel like I'm talking to people. You know, yesterday I was at Bar- Brian Robinson's funeral. Mm. He was the first ever British winner mm. of stage of the Tour de France. And of course, um, a lot of his peers and colleagues from a similar generation were there as well. And I, I spent hours talking to Barry Hoban and Hugh Porter mm. after, after the, the funeral. And of course, in their company, I barely open my mouth because I don't feel like what I have to say is of any merit. Anyway, I'm, I digress. The point about the point about my education in cycling is that the sport, the elite, the highest end of the sport, i.e., the Tour de France, that's what drew me into cycling as a spectator. But it wasn't long before I came home from the Tour de France and bought myself a bike. I, I, I literally joined those dots. I made that connection. And of course, the first bike I got was wildly inappropriate, and I mm. couldn't conceive of doing anything other than every time I jumped on my bike, um, wearing a helmet, clipped-in shoes, full lycra, even if I was going to ride for two miles. Um, and then bit by bit, I've kind of understood that I don't need to do that. And um, my my cycling has become much more utilitarian to the extent that almost all my cycling now is uh, one trouser leg rolled up, no helmet, and it's to get from A to B. I live in London, which is very perfectly kind of like set up, I think, to use the bicycle as a tool for everyday cycling. And, uh, and bit by bit, uh, you know, I've stopped owning a car maybe six or seven years ago. Bit by bit, uh, the understanding that the bicycle is an amazingly powerful and accessible tool for us to change our built environments and the way we go about living our lives has really so- dawned on me and it's become something of a passion. So we've I know got you, you haven't we? We really, we've really grabbed you. If, if we, as the as cycling as a whole, we've we've really converted you. Well, it, it, yeah, yes, yes. I mean, it, and sometimes it's it's very hard to make the case sometimes for um, elite sports. You know, you know those, all those rather trite um, uh, slogans that always wrap around sporting events, like inspire a generation and all this sort of thing. You know. And it's actually the evidence that bringing the Olympic Games to a country actually does much mm. in terms of people kind of like leading a more active and physical lifestyle. But I think the bike does that. I think people, consciously or unconsciously, I think they join the dots between watching um, men and women ride bikes at an amazing level on the television and actually contemplating getting a bike themselves. And, and getting and I think there is a lot of evidence to suggest that, you know, let, let's face it, the Tour de France is the biggest single sh- global showcase in the world for this extraordinary invention that's over 150 years old, but largely unchanged, which is the bicycle, which is why, which is why the debate around the Tour de France, the carbon footprint of the Tour de France, which is eg- egregious, you know, a horror show when you think about it. Debate around whether or not it is right that the Tour de France even happens on these terms, given how much carbon it emits, is actually quite nuanced. Because on the one hand, yes, that's indisputably a bad thing. On the other hand, like I say, it is the the show window, the bicycle as an invention, as a tool, as a thing. If you take that, if you take the Tour de France away, the bicycle disappears from the public consciousness. As a, well, as a cycle historian, I, I would I would absolutely one hundred percent back you up on that because that's that's why these races were were created. This is why the first 
promoters of racing, they were doing it to promote the, the basically transportation cycling to get people to think, wow, you can travel the whole way around France. Or, oh, that means I can go to the shops on my bike then. If they can do that, I can do this. It was the reason for, for races. And, oh, clearly, they've, they've grown to be a very different thing now. But that was definitely the, 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 the people who started these races and people who started getting people to go faster on further on bicycles. Yes, so going around the world was another one is all to show people how practical this this machine is. So I, I 100% agree with you. Yeah, and I, don't, I think that message still applies. But there is a there is a so there is a, a great argument. I mean, I, okay, we might be losing Twitter here, uh, but certainly on all forms of social media, there is this 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 town and gown uh, kind of uh, argument of you know you know that Formula One motor racing is very different from transportation driving. You know we don't mix those two, so why should we mix cycling, you know pro cycling and transportation cycling? But they're much, much more uh, closely allied than I think most people think. And that argument, I think, is is actually uh, not quite so so strong as people maybe think. I mean, it's it's very it's very hard to g- gather this evidence cogently and actually present it. And then, even if you do have the evidence, it's very hard to convince people. But I would just say, literally, listen to what I've just said. Listen to what I've how I've described my career, or if you like, my lifestyle. Mm. That's it. That's that's exactly what I did, Colm. I mean, I was a when I first went to, was sent to cover the Tour de France. I was in my early thirties. I was a little bit overweight. <laughs> I was a person who would not think twice about jumping in my Renault Scenic to go, honestly, quarter of a mile down the road to the shops and come back mm. again. And then I was sent to, to the Tour de France, and everything changed. Mm. Uh, and it changed simply because I, I hadn't stopped and thought about bicycles at all. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd probably last cycled before then. I'd, I'd, at the age of about 17 was probably the last time I jumped on a bike. So between the age of seven, and that's so common, isn't it, in our experience? You know, we ride our bikes as kids, and then for, for whatever reason, as we come into adulthood, we drop them. Mm. Or at least that used to be the model. And so from the age of 17 to my accidental encounter with the Tour de France in 30, at the age of 32, however many years that is, I simply... I didn't give. A, I didn't think about bicycles at all, not once. And here I am, you know. And and I and I know it's anecdotal, and it's and it's just one example. But I I genuinely think that's how it can work. Mm. Mm. Uh, that, that's a, a great analogy, that's a great <coughs> example. So let's go. Let's let's finish this by just give the plug for the road book. So how much is it? Where can people get it from? All that kind of stuff. Give us the biography of your book. Okay, um, it's it's, av- it's available almost exclusively on theroadbook.co.uk uh, on mail order. We ship across the world. Um, it's £50, and we're holding our price down. Uh, and now, I know it sounds a lot of money. It's the same price as Wisdom, incidentally. Um, but, um, but it's been a real fight for us this year with increased everything costs, including printing, to keep mm-hmm. our price down. There are also special, some spe- quite a lot of special offers in terms of building your collection and retrofitting it if you're only coming to the roadbook this year mm-hmm. uh, because you will want to have the whole lot <laughs> i promise you because that's the point so you're building a collection mm. um and uh, as i say plans are afoot to expand the portfolio in the years to come um and we're enormously proud of it and what, what i feel more proud of than almost anything else is that although it is built and uh, built although it is written and published very much with the the road racing fan in mind, you know, um, what I find really 
beautiful about it is that when we send it to riders whose mm. names are printed on the pages, who've mm. actually done the things we're talking about, the universal reaction is, oh my God. And they feel in a digital age where the, all their results are recorded online, they even they understand the sort of emotional purity of having it printed beautifully and presented in a book like The Roadbook. Yeah, the longevity of it, the, the 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 kind of the mystique of it, of being I mean, books, on a bookshelf in 50 years' time. Books are still, quite rightly, held mm. to a different standard. Carlton, you've written books. Mm. Mm. You, 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 I, I've written books. Um, you know, for example, that if you write an article which um, makes certain claims about a, a living human being, and the article is going to be printed in a newspaper or in a magazine or online... Um, the lawyers might have a look at that and go, well, you'll probably get away with that. <clears throat> if you make the same point in a book, legally, that will, by practice, be held to a higher standard. It's fascinating, isn't it? Mm. So um, the, the very act of putting things down in a book as opposed to any other form of medium, written medium, is still valued above everything else. And for good reason. It's, you, bookshelves exist. They're there, it's there to stay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, long may they groan with uh, the <laughs> very, God. very heavy road book. How many, how many kilos did you say it was in, in total? Two kilos. So there are two kilos. So there are now 10 kilograms of the road book in existence. Oh. And uh, we're halfway towards becoming a Ryanair baggage allowance, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> hey, everyone. This is David from the Fredcast and the Spokesman. And I'm here once again to tell you about our amazing sponsor, Turn Bicycles at www.turnbicycles.com, T-E-R-N bicycles.com. Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. Speaking of, of being able to ride every day, as a spokesman listener, I'm going to bet that you are the go-to consultant for your friends who want to ride but aren't enthusiasts and need some advice on what to buy. In that case, you may have people in your life for whom you just haven't been able to recommend just the right bike, considering their stature, age, mobility issues, or just plain hesitance to get back on a bike. Finally, those family members and friends can experience a new bike day with the all-new turn NBD. Get it? New bike day NBD. Okay, the NBD has been specifically designed to be confidently easy to handle and easy to ride, even well, even for those folks who might be, as Josh Hahn, team captain of Turn Bicycles says, are smaller in size and have a hard time finding a bike that fits, or older riders who might not have ridden a bike in a while, or riders who might have balance or physical issues, or riders who are just intimidated by the sheer size and weight of the average e-bike. As Josh goes on to say, the NBD will be refreshingly easy to hop aboard and ride. Now, how can Josh be so confident in that? Well, it's simple. The NBD has the lowest, longest step-through opening of any premium e-bike. So if you know someone with a knee or a hip injury or, or somebody who just can't lift their leg over the top tube of a regular bike, this alone could make all the difference. Plus, the NBD is designed with an ultra-low center of gravity and a longer wheelbase. And what does that mean? Well, it means that it makes it easy to balance and handle. And with a lowered bottom bracket, 
and motor, the NBD is stable for all riders and particularly inspires confidence for shorter cyclists because they can easily get their feet on the ground when they come to a stop. But the MBD isn't just for shorter riders. As a matter of fact, it adjusts in seconds, without tools, by the way, to fit riders from 4 foot 10 to 6 foot 3 or 147 to 190 centimeters. The NBD is also super comfortable with its upright riding position, swept handlebars, suspension seat post, and wide 20-inch balloon tires. Need to load the NBD into a car? No problem. It folds flat in seconds. How about getting it into a smaller living space? No sweat. The NBD includes Turn's vertical parking feature so you can roll the bike into a small elevator and park it in a corner of your apartment. Now, with a max gross vehicle weight of 140 kilos, that's 308 pounds, the NBD can easily carry an extra passenger and plenty of cargo, with up to 27 kilos on the rear rack and up to 20 kilos on the front rack. And in fact, it works with a wide range of turn accessories and with most child seats. As I've said before, and this is important to me, really important, safety is a core value at turn. And that's why the NBD frame and fork have been rigorously tested by one of Europe's leading bike test labs. That's also why Turn chooses to use the Bosch motor and battery system. It's one of the few systems on the market that meets and passes the UL standard for battery and electronics safety. Read the news and you know how important that is. Now, the NBD comes in two models with prices starting at $3,899 or €3,999 and bikes are going to start arriving in stores in Q1 of 2023. For more information about the NBD or any of Turn's wide range of bikes, just head on over to TurnBicycles.com. Again, T-E-R-N Bicycles.com. We thank Turn for their sponsorship of the Spokesman Podcast, and we thank you for your support of Turn. Once again, thanks for allowing me this brief introduction, everybody. And now let's get back to Carlton and the Spokesman. Thanks, David. And we are back with show number 314 of the Spokesman Podcast. And before David's ad break, uh, there was a discussion that I had with Ned Balding, and we were discussing the road book. Uh, now, however, I'd like to go across to Hannah Reynolds, and Hannah will be talking about a book that is involving a very famous long-distance ride from one part of uh, the United Kingdom to the other part of the United Kingdom. So, Land's End to John O'Groats, but in a slightly repackaged way. Where, where, where are you actually today? But physically, where are you? I'm in Mallorca. That's what I thought you said. So that's why. Why? Why are you in Mallorca? Why am I in Mallorca? Um, the, the story is my partner's a teacher at an international school here. So we've moved out here um, for the school year. So I'm living... Um, and the opposite corner to where most cyclists are. So we're we're down in the kind of like the southeast corner. So opposite to sort of Palencia and Alcudia where you normally see cyclists. Uh, so it's been good. It's been uh, exploring the island from a, from a different direction. Because mm. normally when you're in the UK, you'd be in Sedbra, is that right? Yeah, I'd be in Sedbra, which is in Cumbria. It's um, Sedbra's in the uh, administrative county of cumbria 
It's in the Yorkshire Dales National Park, and we have a Lancaster Lancashire postcode. So it's uh-huh. uh, it's in the it's in between the Lake District to one side and the Yorkshire Dales to the other. All mixed up. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. And then I'd like to go through your CV because I, I've noticed that there's a there's a Newcastle angle here for me in that uh, you've worked as a guide for Skedaddle. Yeah, that's right. From for. A, 10 years now, I think, maybe even a touch more. Hmm. Now, I've, I've done some um, trips with, with – it wasn't actually a skedaddle trip. It was a different – it was um, Ciclismo Classico. Uh, but the guides there, they were from Sardinia, and they were saying they knew um, the Oosburn River mm-hmm. and Castle really well because they get brought across by uh, skedaddle. So is that the same case for you? you? You've been to Newcastle plenty of times because of Skedaddle. Yeah, I've been to Newcastle a fair bit. Um, the main office is there, so I pop in there quite frequently. And um, we have, as your Sardinian guides were telling you, we have a guides um, get-together every year. So wherever mm-hmm. wherever you are in the globe, um, you know whether you're working in Italy, Spain, France, or even um, further further afield we've got um skedaddle holidays really do run in every corner of the world so we all get together and exchange some ideas and talk about guiding and make sure that we're all you know doing things to the same standard in a similar way so it's a really nice multicultural company to work for from that point of view i was mainly france um hesitant as always to mention the b word um but the the double whammy of covid and brexit meant that we're not um, we're not looking after France anymore. Um, actually, your Sardinian guides, um, Italy it will be helping to run some of the French holidays. So I still hope to guide there. Um, I love cycling in France. I, you know, I genuinely think that France is one of the best countries in the world for cycling because it's so, it's so culturally endemic that even if you're not a cyclist, you understand cycling. Whereas many other countries that I've cycled in and travelled to, Cyclists understand cycling, but the rest of the country doesn't. Whereas you can turn up anywhere in France, and someone will—they'll be able to at least name some of their country's most famous races and understand mm. the challenge of cycling. You feel really, really um, welcome and respected in France. So yeah, I'd always mm. choose to cycle in France and guide in France when the opportunities are there. So, given that B word, where are you guiding now? Then um, I'm not. Currently guiding, um, we're in a in an off season. I guided in the UK last year. Um, we do uh, bands and John O'Groats, obviously. Um, some lovely cycling around the the Dales and the Lake District. Uh, I did um, Tour de Cos, so uh, a little loop around Scotland. So yeah, I did a lot more in the UK last year, which um, I suppose has been interesting for me. Um, I know, I mean, you always feel like you know your own country quite well, but there's so many places that I'm yet to really deeply explore, even in my own backyard. So it is nice sometimes, that whole staycation vibe, I think, open people's eyes to what we've got on our own doorsteps. Mm. Uh, and you mentioned uh, London John Rhodes there, so let's talk about your book. Yes, let's. Six, six years in the preparation, it says in the press release. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a slow burn, that one. Um, our first book, our first uh, guidebook, was France en Velo, 
which was mm. from San Marlo down to Nice. So it was a thousand mile journey across France from the Channel to the Med um, with the uh, objective of finding the best cycling and the best kind of segmented cross section of the country. And that was a fabulous book to research. It was a wonderful book to write. Um, we had some lovely cycling experiences and um, we did all kinds of things with that. We we planned the route in cheese. We planned the route in wine. You know, we really kind of got to know that, albeit very narrow, but very long stretch of France. But once we'd finished that and that book had come out, um, we started to think about the UK a bit more. And when we were doing public speaking and, and talks about uh, France on below, we'd sometimes use the phrase, it's like Le Jog, but with better mm. wine, better food and better weather. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we thought, well, actually, that's really doing a disservice to to Land's End John O'Groats because that is a route that people so passionately want to do and have so much affinity for in the UK. And actually, we, we probably should go back and really give that the France on below treatment, which to us means finding the best route, not the most direct or the um, most simple, but the one that actually gives you the taste of the places you're cycling through. So many long distance routes, the challenge, as I'm sure you understand with a long distance route, is you've got to you've got to balance up actually getting there with seeing all the nice spots along the way. And so many long distance routes and so many Land's End John O'Groats routes bypass some of what we consider to be the nicest cycling or the most interesting village or we've got hills probably well partly because of hills partly because of just wanting to make it a manageable distance for people partly to simplify the navigation um the more towns and villages you go through quite often the more you've got to think about your routing um but also lands and john o'groats has been has it, there's many ways you can do it you know, it's two points on the map, Land's End, John O'Groats. You can do it in the shortest distance um, that many of the kind of the racers who are trying to get the fast times do. You can do mm. it You can do it via your, you know, Grand's house in Preston for a free night's accommodation. You know, you can go, you can, whatever your, your objective or your personal interest is, or even where you live in the country, people create their own routes. But we wanted to kind of create a definitive route where if you say, I've done Le Jog 1000, everyone knows which route you've done. Everyone knows it's a thousand miles. Everyone knows you're going to cycle through the Cairngorms. Everyone knows you'll have done the north coast of Cornwall. So we, we wanted to kind of, I guess, tie it down a bit, but also still give people the flexibility of riding it their way. Um the model we created for our first book was to split the thousand miles down into 30 individual um, stages or chunks so that you could do the route in, um, you could do it in 30 days, you know, one very short stage a day, or you could use them as building blocks to create your own tour. So we, we suggest three itineraries, um, the Explorer, uh, which is, the longest one, which gives you plenty of time to really, you know, potter about, see what takes your fancy, have a long lunch, not arrive too exhausted at your destination that you don't want to walk around all evening exploring. Um, 
So we've got that one, which is a three-week itinerary. We then have the classic, mm. which is two weeks, which is what most people do because that's a manageable time frame um, in a work holiday and being away from home for two weeks. And then we've gone for a 10-day challenge route, which puts most days just below or just above 100 miles. So that's a really good, you know, if you've done a 1,000 miles in 10 days, that's a cycling challenge to kind of like really put in your palmares and, and remember um, as being a significant physical challenge. So you can do it any way you want. You can you can take the, the slow slow cycling route or you can take the fast cycling route but the actual physical route would remain the same Mm. and when you're researching this you didn't do it in one go you've obviously done it in chunks yourself oh yeah absolutely um have you ever done it in one go i've never done it in one go i've actually never done it in one go because Mm -hmm. i've either been guiding so i've not ridden every day because there's been reasons why I've needed to drive the van or miss a day because when you're guiding you're about the people you're um, guiding your clients not your own riding so I've never done it in one go with with uh, a guided group Uh, I've never done it in one go when I'm researching because you you tend to sort of like pick a section and go in deep but not do it all in one go Um, and then my very 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 first experience of Land's End to John O'Groats was more than 20 years ago and I did it when I was at uni um, with some friends who wanted to to do it in I think they did something ridiculous like four and a half days and I spent most of my time um, trying to find bananas in supermarkets for them and that was a completely different route because we did take advantage of you know friends and family's hospitality so no no it's it's poor I'm, I'm gonna have to do it now I'm gonna have to take my own book and ride it in one go <laughs> uh yes yes and then tell me about your other books so you've, you've mentioned the France one but that you, there's other books out there yeah there are um 1001 cycling tips there's a bit of a thousand theme here 1001 cycling tips came out last spring um that's it's it's a it's a fun it's a fun book but also it has lots of different tips which I hope will work for a a really wide variety of cyclists you know someone like yourself who's been involved in the sport for for decades will probably read some and think "Mm, yeah I agree with that or oh no I wouldn't do it that way and you know but then for some beginners it will give them really simple accessible um easy tips to just get get started hmm and then let's, let's go back to where we started really and that is Mallorca yeah so it, it, I mean you've got kids haven't you I do I've got a um three just about to turn four year old yes so you presumably at the moment can't just go out on a long day ride on a whim if you've got a, a kid so but they're going to school soon I suppose I mean how much exploring do you do on a on, on a daily basis uh, we've got quite a flexible approach in our house because everyone my partner cycles as well so I tow I my son goes to like a, a preschool so I tow mm. him in a trailer eight miles to preschool and eight miles back twice a day so I'm doing 34 miles with a bike trailer which is feels probably that's, like that's a full day training. yeah that feels tough mm. that that's tough and then at the weekends um what we tend to do is one of us will pick a spot and cycle there and the other one will drive um with my son in the car 
and then we'll have lunch together as a family and then swap and the other person rides back. And um, another option is my partner is into enduro downhill. So we, we do a kind of strange uplift service where he'll drive the vehicle to the top of a hill and I'll cycle up it and then we'll exchange car and child and he'll ride down. So if you look at my Strava and his Strava in a kind of like 60 mile route, I've only ridden uphill and he's only ever ridden downhill. Hmm. That's 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 dialed in. That that's yeah. That's it's thought through. Yeah, it's uh, it's that's an effective planning. balance. Yeah. Thanks to Hannah Reynolds there, and thanks also to Ned Bolting earlier. Details of both their books can be found on the show notes at the hyphen spokesmen dot com. And this has been episode three hundred and fourteen of the Spokesman Podcast, brought to you in association with Turn Bicycles. The next episode will be out next month. But meanwhile, get out there. <laughs>